to the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Two Kings 6, and we'll begin reading from verse 24 and then following into chapter 7. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80, 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove's droppings for five shekels of of silver. Some say that cab of dove's droppings. Some say there's translation says that it's the pods of peas rather than actual dove's droppings. Be that as it may, things were desperate. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? Then the king said to her, What is troubling you? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. That happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Then he said, God, do to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Uh, Elisha was the great prophet, and uh, rather than the king blame himself and the state of the nation for their calamity, he's blaming the man of God. But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him, but before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time... A sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said one to another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. And if they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army. So they said one to another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight, and they left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. 
And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank, and carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent, and carried some from there also, and went and hid it. Then they said one to another, We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of the servants answered and said, Please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either come, uh, become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan. And indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. That's a trail of about 25 miles, by the way. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. And so a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the officer in whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said. He spoke when the king came down to him. And so it happened, just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two seahs of barley for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, Look, now, if the Lord should make windows of heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. It's a long reading tonight, and we'll not go back over that whole story, obviously. Now, if I wanted to find a text in the New Testament that would best describe what we have just read about these four lepers' men, it would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For you see your calling, brethren, but not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. I want to speak this evening on turning defeat into victory. Turning defeat into victory. Many, many people are living in defeat. They are besieged. They're hemmed in on every side. They're harassed. They're harangued by the evil one. The people of God in Samaria were in defeat. No question about that. They had no victory. There was no rejoicing. 
were wearing sackcloth and ashes, and they were literally devouring one another. Such was the state of the city. And right in the midst of this situation were these four leprous men. Now, of all of the people in the city, these four has got to be worse off than anyone else by the fact that they had this horrible disease and by the fact that they were ostracized and made to stay literally outside the city walls. Physically, their situation was chronic. It was incurable. It was terminal. Socially, they were outcasts. They were stigmatized as lepers. No one would want to go too close to them. Financially, obviously, they were bust. They were sitting at the gate probably bagging in rags. Spiritually, even though they were covenant men of the Old Testament, yet they were defeated men and they were powerless and they were overcome by the enemy. Things could not have gotten any worse for these four men. Sounds like defeat to me. But these men turned defeat into victory. They turned loss into gain. Shortage into surplus. Poverty into prosperity. Despair into delight. Rejection into rejoicing. Their whole life was turned around. And you too can turn defeat into victory. You may be facing what seems like an impossible situation. Insurmountable odds. Most adverse circumstances. And yet in spite of that... You can become a conqueror, and you can overcome, and you can be victorious. How can you overcome? How can you win in the end? First of all, you have to determine, absolutely determine, that you are going to be victorious. You may not know how you're going to do it, but you are going to do it. You will not accept defeat. You will not lie down. You will not capitulate. You will not accept the notion of defeat even. Thanks be unto God, Paul says, who always causes us to triumph. Henry Fawcett was a young man. And in his teenage years, he was accidentally blinded by his father's shotgun. But Henry Fawcett said within 10 minutes of that happening, he decided right there and then that he would not give up on his ambition to go to Cambridge and study. And he didn't. And he went to Cambridge. And he studied. And he became the postmaster general of all England, would you believe? In fact, he became the inventor of the parcel post. So every time you get a parcel post and you have to sign for it, you can thank Henry Fawcett. He was the one who just would not give up, even as a young man. Edison and Beethoven lost their hearing almost completely. Edison went on as among the many things he invented was the phonograph. For you young people tonight, if you don't know what a phonograph was, uh, it became the precursor to the hi-fi system the stereo system, which in turn became the precursor to the Sony Walkman, the disc player, uh, to MP3 players, your iPods and the like of it. And Beethoven, of course, even in his deafness, 
was able to write some of the greatest music that has ever been played on an iPod. They would not give up. In spite of their handicap, in spite of their setbacks, John Melton, he went blind. And even when he went blind, he wrote some of his greatest masterpieces, Treatise on Christian Doctrine, a Latin Dictionary, and of course, Paradise Lost, which today is one of the classics. Robert Louis Stevenson, for 14 years of his life, he was always a quite a sickly boy, but for 14 years of his life, he was virtually a bedridden invalid. For 14 years, he hardly went out of his room. And yet, during that time, he wrote Treasure Island, which again is a great classic. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And both those, there's been many movies made about them. And he said many times when he was writing, his head was swimming. And he was so much in pain that he could hardly stand it. But he says he never stopped writing every single day because he had the vision of writing and writing great stories. George Frederick Handel was a great musician. He lost his health. He was paralyzed down one side. And at one stage, he became broke. His money was gone. In fact, he was so insolvent that they threatened to put him in prison. But he never lost his faith. He never lost his faith. And of course, among the many things he ought to write was Messiah. Handel's Messiah. What a piece of music. Particularly the Hallelujah Chorus. Anybody ever go and see Handel's Messiah in here? Anybody ever see it? A few of you. Well, one of the disappointing things about seeing it, and we have seen it a few times in the Ulster Hall, I think it was, when you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, out of tradition, everybody stands to their feet, but nobody says a word. <laughs> and I often think if that was done in a great big concert hall full of believers, <laughs> they would be racing the roof of the place, but everybody's standing like this here. Because I think King George stood up when it was being played in his day, and everybody stood up with him because they didn't want to sit down in the King's Stanley. So it's become a tradition to this day. What a powerful piece of music. And yet, in spite of all that he went through, he was still able to do it. Apostle John wrote, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So whatever we face in life, God has given us faith to overcome and a desire to overcome and to win through in the end. So you have to determine that you are going to be victorious. That whatever you're going through is not going to stop you. It's not going to beat you. But you're going to overcome in the end. Amen? Amen. Secondly, you have to rise up from where you're sitting. We're sitting at the gate of Samaria. In verse 3 it says, Why sit we here until we die? They looked at their situation. And they looked what would happen if they go in. They look what happened if they sit still. They look what happened if they go on. And they decided, well, we're going to get up and we're going to go on. Why sit we here until we die? Where are you sitting, spiritually speaking? Are you at the gate of Samaria? Where are you sitting in your thinking? Where are you sitting 
in your attitude? Where are you sitting in your believing? Where are you sitting in your problem? Have you parked at it? For a long time they sat at the gate of Samaria. But then there came a point where they had to make up their mind. We cannot sit here any longer. We'll die sitting here. And even if we die going forward, better going forward and dying than sitting and dying. And so they made up their minds that they were going to rise up from where they were sitting. In John chapter 5, there's an interesting story about the man at Bethesda. Verse 1 of John 5, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. These were colonnades, arch colonnades, where people could sit in the shade under, away from the hot sun. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now there's those who would say that when it talks about the stirring of the water, the angel coming down and people going in and being healed, that that was not in the original. And somehow or other that the translators put that in there. And be that as it may, uh, whether that sounds too superstitious to be in there, be that as it may, there must have been something. For a man to sit there for 38 years, he must have saw something. He began with hope in his heart because of what he had heard and perhaps what he had seen. And he sat there day after day after day after day for 38 years. That's half a lifetime, isn't it? 38 years is a long time to be sitting there. And he probably started out as a young man. Again, maybe as a young teenager. And his friends would bring him every day. And then after a while, life goes on. And they stop coming. But he had to be there. And he had to sit there day after day after day for 38 years. And probably at the beginning, he had hope in his heart. He had a great desire. And he heard the stories. And he maybe saw people being healed. And he would watch for the waters being stirred. But then as he would go on, after maybe six months or maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe even three years, who knows, at some point he must have sat there and thinking, you know, this doesn't work. Or if it does work, certainly not working for me. I'm still here after 38 years. It's a long, long time, isn't it? But notice what happens. A certain man was there who had an infirmity, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said unto him, Do you want to be made well? Now, you would have thought Jesus would have been a bit more sensitive than that, wouldn't you? I mean, it seems a fairly harsh thing to say, knowing full well how long he had been there. Jesus didn't need anybody to tell him. He already knew. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. 
So knowing all of that about him, he said something that could easily offended him. He looked at him and says, do you really want to be made well? You see, he was challenging this man. I was watching a program, I think it was last week, it was about some prison in America. I don't know what prison it was. And it was about the lifers who were there. And they were there for murders and multiple murders and all the rest of it. And there was one man who was there for something like 40 years he's been sentenced to. And I think he's been maybe there 40 years. Oh, yeah, he's been there 40 years. As a young man, he murdered a couple of people. And he's always in trouble. And he's in there. And he had been released for a while and then did more murders, got back in again. So in the end, altogether, he's been there 40 years. And he's institutionalized. He doesn't want out. In fact, he says, if I get out, I would do it again to get back in again. And in fact, they talked to others who were there a long, long time and they became institutionalized till they didn't know how to cope with life outside the prison walls anymore. They had been in so long that that was foreign to them. They had their way of going in there. They were institutionalized. Same as people sometimes who's hospital for many, many years or in some institution, for many, they get institutionalized. That's their life. And, and there comes a time they accept that. This is what it's going to be for me. So I'll make the best of it while I'm here. And here's a man, and it seems to be he, he's, he's kind of come institutionalized where he is. He doesn't see any way out of this. This is his life from now on. He's been doing this for 38 years. I love what Warren Wearsby says. He says, it's more than his body's paralyzed. His will has been paralyzed. He's paralyzed on the inside, this man. And so Jesus challenges him. Do you want to be made well? And then notice the sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no man. So immediately, immediately, he's looking for an excuse. I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now, the fact that he says, while I'm trying, another gets before me. But at least, even though he's institutionalized, even though he's married 38 years, even though he maybe feels I'm never going to make it because everybody pushes me out of the way, but at least there's still something in him still wanting to try, isn't there? And Jesus picks up on this and says, do you want to be made well? And then Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was weighed well. He took up his bed and he walked. Take up your bed and walk. And the word actually means keep on walking. Keep on walking. Don't stop now. Keep on walking. You've been sitting a long time. Your legs are healed, but you've got to keep on walking. Can you imagine what the rest of the people sitting there must have thought when they saw that man walking? They all knew him. He was probably there the longest than anybody. He was a, I mean, he was a character, wasn't he? Everybody knew this man. And suddenly he's walking, and he's walking, and he's walking away from him, and he's walking into the distance, and he's still away. He can't stop walking. You know where he's heading to? He's heading to the temple to give God thanks. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He admits that later. But he knows who God is, so he's heading to the temple to give God thanks. I can't read the rest of that story because it's not really what I want to get at. By the way, Jesus did that on the Sabbath, knowing full well that whenever those Pharisees heard about it, 
They would care much more about their Sabbath being broken, their Sabbath ideas being broken, than he did about this poor man who had been lying for 38 years. Why sit we here until we die? Sometimes, you know, if the battle is long in your life, you can sort of come to accept it and say, well, it's always going to be this way, so there's nothing better for me. And I think that's the place this man had got to. Everybody else around him seemed to get their turn, but it never came his turn until Jesus came and Jesus healed him and lifted him up from that place. And then thirdly, you've got to rise up and you've got to do something. Verse 5 says, And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. Twilight, when the sun was setting, when it was getting dark, that's when they rose up. Paul and Silas says, at midnight, at the darkest hour in the prison, they began to pray and they began to praise God. And these men waited until the sun had set, until it was getting dark. And then they got up and they made their way to the enemy's camp. But I want you to notice something here. Even though they were physically broken, socially branded, financially bust, but spiritually they're no longer beaten. Something inside of them has risen up and said, we will not sit here any longer. We're going to do something. Even if it is heading towards the enemy's camp, we're going to do something. And because they did something, God did something. Because in verse 7, it's interesting... Sorry, verse 7, yes. Verse 5, they rose up at twilight. And verse 7, it says, the enemy rose up and fled in the twilight. So the very moment, the exact moment they rose up and they took that first step towards the enemy's camp, at that exact moment, God did something. Because at that exact moment, the enemy rose up and they fled. We read the story there. Why did they flee? Because they heard the sound of they thought of a great army. They thought the Egyptians and the Hittites had joined in the battle and were going to be slaughtered. They heard a great noise. And every time those four men put their feet on the ground, it must have echoed over that whole valley. And God amplified it till they thought there was a great army. But the point I'm making is when they did something, they took that first step. God did something. God answered that step that they took. What happened to Paul and Silas at midnight? As soon as they began to pray, as soon as they began to praise God at midnight, when their backs were bloodied and broken by being whipped, when they did that, when they took that step, then God did something. He sent a great earthquake, and the prison house was shaken. And you know the story how they got out. So where are you tonight? Where are you sitting regarding your problem or your need or your situation? Are you going to rise up? Are you going to take a step? 
Because if you do and when you do, you find that God will answer and God will move. Sometimes he needs us to make a move. Roll away the stone, he said at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus could have rolled away the stone. He could have spoke to that stone and made it disappear. But he wanted them to do something. Take a little bit of effort. It would take some faith to roll away the stone. By this time they said he stinketh. It wasn't going to be very pleasant, they thought, to roll away the stone. But Jesus says, roll away the stone. And as they rolled away the stone, then Jesus did his part. Oftentimes, God is waiting for us to do something, do our part. And it takes faith to do it. And it takes courage sometimes to do it. But if we do it, then God moves and he does his part. So we can turn defeat into victory. We can turn defeat into victory tonight. And God can give us a great victory. Many of you have testimonies where you faced situations that didn't look good, looked bleak, looked terrible in fact. But you made a move and you trusted God and you took a step of faith. And God moved mountains for you. He did something on your behalf and changed the situation. Amen? We're going to pray. Lord, we thank you that even though it may look impossible, it may seem insurmountable, but with God all things are possible to him who believes. So we're going to trust you tonight. We're going to believe and we're going to do something. Reminded, Lord, of Peter who stepped out over the boat and put his feet in the water. In the midst of the storm, At the darkest hour, he did something. And he did walk in the water. So Lord, maybe tonight there's a brother or sister, there's someone tonight, Lord, and maybe they faced this problem a long time. And maybe they've almost felt like giving up and not doing anything more. But Lord, we are going to rise up. We are going to believe. We are going to take a step of faith. And we're going to trust, Lord, that you would come, that you would intervene, and Lord, that you would break through. So we thank you for that. So in our hearts, Lord, we're rising up. And in our hearts, we're going to take a step of faith. And in our hearts, we're going to say we're not going to give up. We're going to believe God's Word and His promises. So we give you thanks for this tonight. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you, Lord. We know that whenever we step out believing and trusting, Lord, that you will catch us. You'll not let us fall. You'll be there for us. And so we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's not our intention on Sunday nights to keep you, especially this.